But you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. As we come to the end of our covenant series from Adam to Christ, we could probably spend a lot more time on the covenant of redemption. Uh, but tonight we'll see the outworking of it uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. And you'll have the privilege today of being part of our services where both services end a sermon series. That'll probably never happen again, so enjoy it uh, while it's here. Uh, Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 is what we'll look at this evening. From aliens to citizens. So we'll begin reading at verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called on circumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from that uh, from two thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to god in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity and he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the father now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful that Christ is at your right hand. We are thankful that he is sitting there after he led captivity captive. Thank you that he reigns supreme at your right hand. And thank you that he has sent forth the spirit to dwell amongst us. Thank you that we have the spirit who indwells each and every one of your people. But thank you that your spirit has been poured out uh, on the whole world. Thank you that your spirit has been poured out on all flesh. Thank you for this promise of old and fulfilled in the new based upon Christ and his finished work. And so we ask that you give us the spirit tonight of illumination. Help us to understand what your word says concerning Christ and what he has done. Help us to understand the privileges that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and the privilege it is to dwell with you, O God. Thank you that you dwell with us. Thank you that we dwell with you. We know that if we are in our sin without Christ, we would be separated from you. We would be away from your favorable presence. But thank that there is a way, there is access to you, that we can ascend the mount of the Lord through Christ the Lord and Christ the King. So may we not take this time for granted. May we not take prayer for granted. And may we appreciate all that you've done for us. So we ask that you be with us now by your spirit. Be pleased to strengthen your saints. Be pleased to save sinners. And in all things, we pray that you be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. But well, we do come to the end of our covenant series, how God enters into covenant, how God enters into relationship uh, with this world. We looked at the various types of covenants throughout scripture and the past several uh, Lord's Suppers. We've been looking at the covenant of redemption, which is part of the kingdom of Christ, which is that eternal foundation, uh, God's plan before the foundation of the world to save sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a covenant of works for the son 
that the son would take on human flesh and that the son would become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It was this agreement between father, son, and Holy Spirit. Sam Renahan says, Scripture presents that eternal purpose and promise of salvation to mankind metaphorically in the mode of a covenant transacted between the person of the Trinity. And as we consider the what God did with Adam in the garden, and as we consider that blessed bliss that Adam had in the garden, that bliss was dwelling with God. And so when Adam sinned against God Most High and transgressed that covenant, man was kicked out of that favorable presence of God. Man was kicked out of the dwelling place of God. Man was kicked out of the mountain of God. And so really covenant teaches us how we dwell with God Most High, how we approach unto God Most High. And the reason we can approach and dwell with God is because of his eternal purpose that he planned and accomplished in time and space. And I think we see the outworking of the covenant of redemption in verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, the main problem that we see in verses 11 through 22 is the problem of separation. The reality is mankind in sin, mankind in general, general is separated from God because of that violation of the commandment. Mankind does not dwell with God favorably. God does not dwell with mankind favorably because of sin, because of wickedness, because of vileness. How then shall we dwell with God? Who then shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? There is that problem of separation. But there is the problem that the Gentiles were once separated from the people of God in a uh, uh, in an old covenant sense. There is this language here. Old Testament literal Gentiles were not part of the people of God. And in the New Testament, they are what we call spiritual de- Gentiles, which I hope to unpack as we go through. But the point is, Gentiles in the Old Testament didn't have the promises of the Messiah, didn't have the promise of David, didn't have the promise of the king to come. But that is the beauty of the coming of Jesus, because when Jesus comes, he brings salvation for all his people and all his people make up a multitude from every tribe, tongue and nation, a great multitude that no man can number. All the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. And Paul is reminding us of that in verses 11 through 22. And what he's wanting to say to the Ephesians and a very comforting encouragement to us is those that who once were a far off have now been brought near. Those who once were separated from God have now been brought near by the blood of Christ and can dwell with God because of Christ who dwelt with us. And the way we dwell with him is because of that new covenant that is God enters into covenant, into agreement uh, with, uh, with his elect, with those whom he saved. And that salvation is founded upon this eternal plan of God. And so we see this, those who once were afar off, we see this being brought near. We see the, the temple being built in verses 11 through 22. And we'll look at it under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see how we are brought near by Christ, verses 11 through 13. Secondly, we'll see how we have peace in Christ, verses 14 through 18. And lastly, we'll see how we are a building in Christ, verses 19 through 22. So nearby Christ, peace in Christ, and building in Christ. So let's first look at nearby Christ in verses 11 through 13. And notice he says, therefore, remember that you. 
He spent some time talking about the new creation. He spent some time talking about how the Ephesian church has been redeemed and saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, how they were once dead in their trespasses and sins, chapter two, verses one through three, and now they are made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what he has done, being united to him, we see the great uh, verse that says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. God, who is rich in mercy, he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and created us and worked in us that we might be of that new creation. He says that in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That passage is not a try-harder passage. That passage is not a sanctification passage. That passage is a status passage. That is, you are the new man. You are the new creation in Christ. You are his workmanship in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to unpack further what that means in verses 11 through 22. And the focus really here is on status. What they once were, but what they are now. Yes, in sin, they were once alienated from God most high, but also in redemptive history, they were alienated from the people of God. They were not part of the old covenant. They were not part of the old covenant Israel of the flesh, but now in the new covenant, in the new creation, they have been brought near. So he continues this discussion of new creation and how they who are once alienated can be part of those promises, can be part of that new covenant, can be part of the people of God. So it goes on to say, therefore, remember that you, and he goes on to tell them what they once were. What is the content of their remembering? You once were Gentiles in the flesh. Now, a Gentile is just anyone who is not a Jew. Anyone who is not born in Israel, anyone who's not Jew by way of ethnic descent. And so it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Though you were once Gentiles in the flesh. That is the church at Ephesus, they were Gentiles, but yet they were once Gentiles in the flesh. He's speaking spiritually here. Gentiles were considered outside the camp. They were considered outside the people of God. And so what he is saying here is one must be a Jew inwardly. One must be a Jew spiritually, and it's perhaps the opposite of what Paul says in Romans 9, where Paul is concerned for his fellow brethren, like actual Jews, and he says to them, and he writes to the church at Rome and says, not all Israel is Israel. That is, it's based upon faith. It's based upon Christ. It's not based upon one's ethnic descent. So one who could be a Jew, literally, but be a Gentile spiritually, just like one could be a Gentile uh, uh, temporally and be a Jew spiritually. And so that's the language we see here. You once were Gentiles in the flesh, but now you are the people of God in Christ who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in flesh by hands. Again, describing the quality We've seen the circumcision made without hands in Colossians chapter 2, that spiritual setting apart. Again, the Old Testament people really were set apart physically according to the terms of that old covenant, according to the terms with Abraham, according to the terms with Moses. But the new covenant is better. The new covenant is qualitatively different. The new covenant is one of spiritual work, inward work. The old covenant was one of outward work. And we see that here. 
who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. You once were alienated, you once were treated as dogs, but now you are brought in and part of that people. And he goes on to say in verse 12, the remembering continues, and he wants them to be reminded of the five ways they were without God. And he says that, that at that time, that is when you were once Gentiles in the flesh, you were one without Christ. What that means is they didn't have the Israelite promises that we see in the Davidic covenant, that we see in the Mosaic covenant, that we see in the, uh, in the prophecies of Isaiah and the various other prophets as well. Not saying the Messiah's coming wasn't for them, but they didn't have the hope of his coming. They didn't have the hope of those promises. They didn't have the stump king. They didn't have uh, the child to come. Yes, it is about them and the salvation that comes from Christ, but they didn't have those promises. When Israel's taken into captivity, the remnant can be like the stump king is going to come. The remnant can be like Emmanuel is going to come. Well, the, the, the Gentiles did not have those promises. That was a great privilege and promise uh, that the Jews certainly had. So they're without the promise of the Messiah. Then secondly, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, they were not part of the old covenant people of God. I don't deny that Israel at one point was the people of God. I don't deny that they were set apart as the people of God after being brought out of the land of Egypt and being brought to the Mount Sinai, brought to the dwelling of God, being set apart because nothing was good within them. But they rebelled. They violated God's law. They were kicked out of the land, and it paved the way for a greater Israel to come. But at one point, they were not part, uh, the Gentiles were not part of the people of God. Yes, there was foreshadow. Yes, there are a few. Rahab, Ruth, Tamar, uh, what's the other, like Bathsheba, uh, you know, Naaman, all those many other Gentile foreshadowed who believed and confessed in God, but they were rare and they were few. It was not a, uh, if one wanted to be part of the people of God, they had to uh, become a Jew. So without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth, that is separated, not part, not literal aliens, they were separated and not from a certain place, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And then thirdly, strangers from the covenants of promise. Again, they didn't have the Abrahamic covenant. They didn't have the Davidic covenant. Those were for the kingdom of Israel. And we looked at the Abrahamic covenant and its terms. We looked at the Mosaic and its terms. And we looked at the Davidic and its terms. But Israel had that as a special covenant. They had those covenants for them. Yes, again, it foreshadows in Abraham, in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, but it narrows. It narrows through Abraham's physical seed. It narrows through the people of Israel. It narrows through the king who would come from Israel. And the Gentiles did not have these promises at their fingertips. And then fourthly, they had no hope. Again, the Jews, when they went into exile, they had the hope. They had the promises. When the Jews went into exile, God said, I'm going to bring you back. God said, I'm going to bring restoration. God said that I am going to bring a far greater hope and a far greater kingdom than the one that you are leaving. Nineveh doesn't have that. We're going to look at Nineveh when we look at Nahum, the prophet Nahum starting next week, Lord willing. Nineveh just dies. 
But the people of Israel, the people of God continue, and they had hope. The remnant had hope under the old covenant, but it points to the new. They looked ahead to the new, but the old covenant Jews, who are the remnant people, had that hope. The Gentiles did not. And then fifthly, they were without God in the world. This is a reference to their polytheism, believing uh, in many gods. And what he's saying here is there's only one true God. And even though you thought you believed in God, in reality, you were without God. And the gods that you thought you believed in are just idols made with hands. They have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear and hands that do not touch because they are idols made with men's sinful, wicked minds and hearts. And so anyone who does not believe on the one true God, anyone who does not believe in Christ is without God. And these ones were without God. Yes, God is overall, God is sovereign over all things, but they were without God in this special, favorable dwelling. Even under the old covenant, God dwelt with them in an external way, but it paves the way for God's dwelling with his people under the new covenant. But these five things they did not have. But then we have a but now in verse 13. I think I've said many times some of the best word or the best word in the Bible is but now, or the best words in the Bible are but now. You once were alienated, you once were without all these things, but now. You once who were a far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And usually the but nows emphasize a new age. They emphasize an eschatological change. That is, the new age has dawned in the Messiah, and the but now applies to Gentiles by way of faith. The Messianic age is here. The age to come has come in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Gentiles are being brought in. And even that language of those who are afar off have now been brought near is Old Testament language. We're going to see that again. We're going to see that more so uh, in verse 17 with Isaiah 57. But the last time we did the Lord's Supper, we looked at Zechariah 6, verses 13 through 15. And if you remember what I said, and there I tried to point out that what God will do with the one who is the priest king, the one who's not just a priest, but also a king, not just a king, but also a priest, the one who's going to build the temple of the Lord. There is this foundation. There is this council of peace between them both, which I believe is between the Lord and the branch, which has its foundation in eternity and its application in time and space. And we see verse 15, even those from afar off, they shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Jesus Christ is the one who is building the temple of the Lord. Jesus Christ himself is the temple of the Lord. And he is the one who has brought those from afar off and is bringing them in. And we see that fulfilled with the church at Ephesus. So we could say, based on Zechariah 6, what God planned in eternity Father, Son, and Spirit to save sinners, God applies through the building of his temple, through the one who is the branch, the one who is the priest, and we see that fulfilled with the Ephesians. We see that fulfilled with all of his people who are saved and brought in. Those who are once afar off have now been brought near. And notice how we are brought near. By the blood of Christ. Because of sin... Because of our violations of God's law, 
The only way to approach unto our holy God is by way of sacrifice. And it's by way of blood. That's why Leviticus starts with sacrifice. As God comes and dwells with the people, the cloud descends. The question then becomes, who shall dwell with Yahweh? Well, you have to ascend by way of blood. Brethren, thankfully, we ascend by way the way of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has purified us. He is the one who has taken away our sins. He is the one who has turned away the wrath of God. He in him, we can approach unto God. When we enter into this house, dear brethren, the reason we can enter and dwell with God now is because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, not because of my so-called sacrifices, not because of my righteousness, but because of the blood of Jesus and his blood shedding far outweighs the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats. Hebrews spends lots of time with this. We looked at this as well when we looked at the new covenant proper. Uh, Ephesians 1, 7, when we see that covenant of redemption, he came to redeem. He came to redeem through his blood that we might have forgiveness of sins. We have sinned against God. We deserve to be away from the favorable presence of God, yet we can dwell with him. And the reason we can dwell with him is because of the blood of Christ. You who once were alienated because of your sin can now dwell and be brought near by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the focus here is not being a Jew by the flesh, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can approach by his blood and by his blood, we have peace with God. By his blood, we can dwell with God. Without that sacrifice, without our sins being cleansed, without the perfection that is given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is enmity. There is a chasm, a spiritual chasm between God and man, because God must punish sin. God must hate sin. Yet by the blood of Christ, we are brought near and we have peace with God. And this is what we see in verses 14 through 18. We have peace in Christ. Now, the emphasis is the peace brought between Jew and Gentile. But the reason there's peace between Jew and Gentile is because of the peace that we have between us sinners and God most high. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Christ is the one who will make both one. In Christ, we have peace. We have his blood and we approach unto God, but also we have peace with him. And notice who has made both one. That is, he's broken down the middle wall of separation. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity. There is the God hates sin. And Jew and Gentile didn't like each other very much as well. There was a separation to go outside the camp, but to be, uh, to, would, to be, uh, would be away from uh, the presence and the people of God. But God has made them one in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's broken down the barriers between Jew and Gentile. They are no more. This was the promise, too, of Isaiah. This is the promise of the prophets. As Israel is about to go into exile, as the prophets prophesy about Israel being vomited out, they do prophesy about restoration. And the restoration under Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah does not suffice. You want to know why? Does the, the, the glory of the Lord ever come back to the temple then? Does the glory of the Lord ever come back to the temple of the Lord after that restoration? 
You see, even the people who return are waiting for something far greater. They're waiting for a greater dwelling of God amongst his people. They're waiting for the glory of God. And do not miss John 1, 14 through 18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what do they say? What does John say? How does he record it? And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God has come back. The presence of the Lord has returned. And the presence of the Lord has returned in the one who is the word. The one who has perfect life in himself, the one who has perfect life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the one who tabernacles and dwells amongst his people. And Christ, based on his work, based on his dwelling, based on his living and dying and rising again, brings peace between Jew and Gentile. So he says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Yes, there was enmity with God, but there was enmity between Jew and Gentile. The Jews did not like Gentiles and viewed them as dogs, but the Gentiles had a bit of an anti-Jewish attitude as well because of their exclusion. They didn't like each other. And we have the Old Covenant moral, uh, mosaic, uh, judicial laws, the Old Covenant ceremonial laws, not the moral law. But these commandments, these ordinances, what one had to do was a great source of enmity. And Christ has broken them down. He's destroyed those walls. He's destroyed those barriers. And he's made someone, made them a new man in him. He has in himself created one new man from the two, thus making peace. We have new creation language again here. We have last Adam language again here. And this becomes vital and important for the application in Ephesians 4, similar to Colossians 3 type of stuff, similar to the reality that in Christ, we are the new man because Christ is the new man. We see in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 20 through 24, but you have not so learned Christ if, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 23 and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which is created according to God in true righteousness. And that new man in part of the new creation, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. It matters whether you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and renewed in him in that new creation. And by him, peace is made. Then he says in verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God. Jews are sinful. Gentiles are sinful. Might reconcile them to God. We must remember when we see that language of enmity between us and God, it's primarily God's enmity towards us. Yes, we have enmity towards God because of our sin, but God must hate sin. God must despise sin according to his righteous, holy character. He must separate himself from sin. But thankfully, because of his eternal decree and eternal plan, how does he make sin us sinners dwell with him? It's through the one who is perfect in every way. It's through Christ the Lord who brings peace 
by his blood. And he reconciles Jew and Gentile in one body, notice, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Again, we see all this covenant language. We see this covenant fulfillment, what the father planned and the son accomplished, the spirit then applies for us. And the application is Jew and Gentile dwell together as the new creation people. He is reconciled. He has brought us near based upon that cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the beautiful things, too, about redemptive history, hopefully you saw this in the Covenant series. The Covenant series is really just about the flowing of redemption in the Bible. Hopefully you saw how it starts off broad, right? Man sins, man, all of man falls short of the glory of God. We have the first gospel proclaimed in Genesis 3.15, and then things begin to narrow, right? We have Abraham. Okay, in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's going to be Abraham's seed. And that seed is going to be Christ, but it's going to have to come first from his temporal, his physical seed, which narrows to Isaac and then eventually narrows to the people of Israel and then narrows to David. It all narrows. And then all that finds fulfillment in Christ and everything opens up again, right? Christ is the greater Israel. Christ is the greater David. Christ is the seed of Abraham so that in Abraham, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Starts off broad, narrows, opens up, and is broad again as well. And we see that here by the cross of Christ. And notice what he does in verse 17. Same same sort of far off, brought near language. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Those who were Gentiles and those who were Jews. He preached peace. Because of your sin, but because of, uh, because of your sin, there was that enmity. Because of Christ, there is peace. This is where Isaiah 57 comes in. As we think about the three parts of Isaiah, Isaiah 56 through 66 is looking towards the Messianic age. Isaiah 40 through 54 is dealing with the exilic period, but certainly looking future as well. But that's the main thrust and focus. But 56 through 66 is looking ahead. It's looking to the Messianic age. It's looking to Christ to come. This is 800 years before the Lord Jesus was born, or 700 years before the Lord Jesus was born. Uh, But we see in verse 19 of Isaiah 57, I created the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is afar off and to him who is near. And remember, too, this will be after exile. After Israel is kicked out for all their sins, for all their vileness, for all their wickedness, they, they're the ones who uh, uh, removed the people of God's status from them by violating God's covenant. But there's going to be peace. And the way that peace comes is from the one who preaches good news. And that one who preaches good news is the Lord Jesus Christ. And men who preach the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also the language about the foreigner coming in in Isaiah 56, 6. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar isaiah 55 as well and various other places highlight that the return 
under Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, I got that out of order, but that's okay, was insufficient. Something greater must come, and that something greater is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that fulfilled in Ephesians chapter 2. He came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. And he does so by way of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Christ preaches it, but he has men who do so. And he's going to spend some time dealing with what they do in chapter 4, verse 11, as they bring in the kingdom, as they preach the new creation. Then also we see verse 18. There's a lot of Bible passages that we like to put on our fridges, right? Or we have chalkboards or whiteboards and we write down Bible verses. I have to admit, I don't know why I didn't think of 218. 218 is probably one that we should all memorize and remember. But look what it says. For through him, Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. See, brethren, when it comes to Adam's sin, Adam brought us away from the dwelling of God, brought us away from access to God. But in Christ Jesus, we now have access to God. That is, the Son descended, took on a human nature. The Son ascended back into heaven in his human nature. He is, yeah, in his divine nature, he's everywhere present. But then the Spirit was poured out that we might ascend that we might ascend the mount of the Lord, that we might dwell with God most high. See, mountains are important in the Bible. Mountains are important in scripture. Eden was probably a mountain. Sinai is a mountain. Zion is certainly a mountain. And certainly that's where we dwell with God on the mountain. I'm not saying you literally go up a mountain, but we come and dwell with God. And my dear daughter has been doing great names for churches. You know what another name she said for a church should be called? The Mount of the Lord Church. You know what? That's exactly right. Because we come each and every Lord's Day and ascend the Mount of the Lord. And how do we ascend that Mount of the Lord, dear brethren? It is by the Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ to the Father. Notice it's all Trinitarian as well as we consider the the, 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 the mystery of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But yet we dwell with him. And we dwell with the Father through the Son and by the power of the Spirit. What this probably refers to is, one, it refers to our prayers, and how we can approach unto God. But more importantly, it refers to our worship and how we approach unto God in worship. What did the people do when they ascended the mountain? Worship God. Praise his name. Dwell with him. Walk with him in holiness. So we ascend by blood and we walk with him by holiness. And we walk with him by the power of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, who has set us apart, that we might dwell with God. And again, it's all Trinitarian. See how it becomes practical for the people of God? But God planned in eternity, the Son accomplished in history, the Spirit applies that you and I, as we pray and as we gather, might commune with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the Son and by the power of the Spirit. 
Shouldn't this make dwelling the most blessed thing? Shouldn't this make church the most blessed thing that we ascend the Mount of the Lord? I know I'm a broken record with that. I, people probably get annoyed with me. And I sometimes want to just, you know, shake people's faces and grab their collars and just, you know, scream, maybe not scream, but, but I just want to say, why won't you come to the mountain of the Lord? Why won't you come and dwell? Not because I'm being a jerk and I'm just have all these things I have to say, but because it's where God dwells with us, dear brethren. It's where God is with us, and it's where we ought to be. You see, when we walk in this world, yes, God is with us by the Spirit who indwells us, isn't he? But we're walking in a barren land, and thankfully he's with us as we walk through that barren land. But when we gather, there's a reason church is a glimpse and foretaste of heaven. There's a reason we get to enter in and to ascend the mountain of the Lord each and every Lord's day. May it not be a drudgery but may it be a joy. And think about that first catechism question. What does it say? What is man's chief aim? To glorify God in what? Enjoy him forever. And where do we enjoy him? We shall enjoy him in the, on the mountain of the Lord. And we do so through faith in Christ who has brought us near and by one spirit to the Father. We who were once without God, ones who are alienated from God now have access to the Father. And that's what makes Matthew 6 so glorious, that we can call upon God as our Father, according to that spirit of adoption, that we might dwell with God forever and enjoy him forever. And thankfully, we do so in the house of the Lord. Thankfully, we have peace with God, and thankfully, we can be in his house through Christ and thankfully, we can be part of the building of Christ, which is what we see in verses 19 through 22. Notice he says, we are now fellow citizens. Our country is heaven. Verse 19, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are part of the people of God, Gentiles. You're part of the people of God by faith. A prerequisite is not Jewishness but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are part of the saints, part of the separated ones, part of the ones who can live with God most high. You are members of the household of God. The Bible does use a lot of membership type language, doesn't it? As we join a local church and be part of the body of Christ in that you know, visible way. We are part of the whole body of Christ. We are part of the universal church. Membership is a blessed and important thing. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be a member. It's a privilege to be part of the body of Christ in this visible way. I know there's no specific command, but there's a lot of counting language in Acts. There's a lot of membership language in Ephesians and, and 1 Corinthians as well. Membership is the most blessed gift. We get to be part of the household of God in that visible sort of way. You once were alienated, but now are members. And throughout verses 19 through 22, it's temple language, isn't it? We have house of God, foundation, cornerstone, temple, building. It's all about the dwelling of God that is being built. And he goes on to say how this household of God is built. Verse 20, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, based upon that word-based ministry, based upon the advancement through the extraordinary offices that we see here. 
The apostles are easy for us to understand. There were 13 of them, and that's it. (laughs) There were only 13. The prerequisites are given in Acts chapter 1. That is, they were with Christ, or they saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is a special one who sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But after they pass, we have no need for apostles. Want to know why? Their authority still remains as we read read the word. It is God's word, but it's the apostles whom God builds that foundation, that word-based ministry. So the foundation of the apostles, what the word says concerning who God is and what he does for us, but also prophets. Now, it is true that Isaiah prophesied about these times, but here prophets probably refers to the New Covenant prophets or New Testament prophets prophets. Again, there were prophets for a time. Paul was considered a prophet. There's a guy named Agabus who is a prophet in Acts chapter 21, but they were vital for the building of the church. And the reason is they did not have the word of God inscripturated, right? They did not have the word written. The word of God isn't just the written word of God, uh, but at one point there were prophets who spoke the word of God, and we see that with one like Agabus. And so, yes, we have the Old Covenant prophets, the Old Testament prophets, but we have New Testament prophets as well. And the time between Christ's death and the writing of the first book, there is a time period there, tradition, things handed down, the gospel handed down, that's important, and prophets were important for a time as well. It was kept in check by these prophecies. And then as the word is written, as God brings his word and commits it to writing, we have no need for those prophets anymore. And so those prophets have See, or the office of prophet has ceased. You see, prophets were only ever about redemptive history and bringing it to pass. This is important, isn't it? Prophets are never about a person personally. They are never about your specific life and what God is. They're always about the unfolding of redemption, the unfolding of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as John Owen says, if someone gives a prophecy and it aligns with scripture, there's no need for that prophecy. But if someone gives a prophecy and it does not align with scripture, that's a big time issue, isn't it? We have the word of God. I totally believe there was a place for those gifts of revelation. We see that here being built upon the foundation of these ones. And that foundation is still here in the word of God. So built upon the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being that chief cornerstone. He is the most precious part of the building. He is the central part of that temple. He is the temple itself, but he is the one who is building his temple as well uh, um, as he is the head and the church is his body. This comes straight out of Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28. Peter uses similar type of language in 1 Peter chapter 2. But in Psalm 118, as we read at the outset, and that's all about going to the house of God, isn't it? All about entering into his gates and singing praises to his name, but all about God's faithfulness, God's mercy, and God's praise. And we see the stone which the builders rejected, it is the chief cornerstone. 
Those who despised Christ and crucified him, although it was the plan of God, uh, it was God's purpose that through the sin of man, that he would bring redemption for his people, that we might dwell with him. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Also in Isaiah 28, verse 16, as well, that God has brought forth that one who is the cornerstone. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, which is Christ the Lord. And Christ continues to build his temple, verses 21 and 22, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There it is. The church is a temple. Christ is the true temple, and we are the new temple in him. That is the dwelling place of God. Our bodies are called a temple as well, but the church as it gathers is a temple, the place where God dwells, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. The spirit is the agent of new creation, and many writers point out when the spirit descends at Pentecost, it is the end-time temple coming down. And Paul is using very similar language here for us, isn't he? That is, the church as it gathers, we're entering into the end-time temple. We're entering into that new creation. We're entering into the new heavens and new earth. Again, the church, when we gather, is like an embassy as we're making our way home. Thankfully, as we're barren pilgrims in a land and in a barren land, as we make our way home, we get reminders of heaven. We find our rest as we make our way there, but we long for the fullness to come in. But now there is that encouragement and comfort that we are the dwelling place of God in and by the Spirit. So don't let anyone think that Reformed people aren't all about the Holy Spirit. We absolutely are in the specific and biblical understanding of the work of that third person of the Trinity. The one who descends like that cloud as God descends in uh, Exodus 40 and in uh, uh, 1 Kings 8. As God descends in the tabernacle, so too does the Spirit descend as that temple of God's dwelling. And Paul is all about this, isn't he? We've seen it in Colossians, we've seen it in Ephesians, and Michael Morales sums it up well. He says, in a sense, all of Paul's theology flows in and out of his doctrine of the church. This is the new Israel, the new temple, filled with the Spirit of God. Christ is the center, the builder, and cornerstone. The Spirit is the means of union as he applies the blood of Christ and unites believers, body and soul, to him. But the church, the living temple of God, is the result, the blossom and cluster of fruit whose increase is from God and whose liturgy of spiritual sacrifice is to the glory of God the Father. That is what God is doing in the temple. That is the blessing of gathering. We get to dwell with God and we dwell with him through Christ by way of of covenant is not the goal of covenant that we dwell with this one forever and that's the beauty and blessedness of what god does as he condescends as he sends forth christ and as he brings in his people by way of covenants 
we who are once without a home, once who are separated from the house of God, are now brought near and part of God's dwelling. And this all has, again, covenant language. And as we come to a close of our series, it's probably good for us to recap all the covenants that we looked at. And let's do it under this idea of dwelling. Adam dwelt with God in the Garden of Eden. God entered into a covenant of works with him and said to him, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but do not eat from this one tree. And if you eat from that one tree, you shall surely die. What does Adam do? He eats from that one tree and he brings death into this world. And man is driven eastward away from the presence of God, away from the dwelling of God most high. Now, thankfully, uh, amidst all that curse, God promises that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. But man is waiting for that man to come. Man is waiting for that one to return. We come to Noah and all the issues that are there. We see sin is rampant in the world. How shall man dwell with God? Well, God is going to punish sin. So sin is a very serious thing. Thankfully, God saves one man and his family. And God then, after he saves man by way of that flood, and flood in the Bible, water in the Bible signifies death and shield and being away from God, but man passes through that by way of the Ark of the Covenant. And then after that happens, God enters into covenant with Noah and all of the world. And as he does so, what he does there is he's going to bring salvation in this fallen world. But the promise there is that he's not going to destroy the world again until he comes again. Those are the covenants of creation. Then we come to the Abrahamic covenant, and we see with the Tower of Babel, the people try to ascend the Mount of the Lord, do they not? They try to dwell with God, and God shatters them, and God scatters them throughout the rest of the world. Well, then in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Abraham, there shall be salvation. Abraham's salvation shall come through a seed, and dwelling with God shall come through someone else. Fast forward to Moses and the Mosaic covenant, and we see there that the people of Israel brought out of the land of Egypt— and what's interesting is, as you see Genesis, Genesis 1, dwelling with God, Genesis 50, away from God. Egypt is away from God. Egypt is death. And as they then are brought out of the land of Egypt, they are then taken to the mountain of God, where they dwell with God, where they approach unto God. I know, brethren, we read Leviticus, and we kind of glaze over it, but it's all about the dwelling of God, right? And how man approaches unto God most high, which is what they do. But then Israel fails to do this, too. They have the presence of God, yet they failed to spread God's glory to the edge of the earth, even though God dwelt with them at Sinai and dwelt with them at Zion. Then narrow further to the Davidic covenant. And we see David who wants to build a house of the Lord, but God says, I will build the house for you. I will give you a dynasty. A dynasty. I will give you a place to dwell. God gives that promise to him. And that the son of David would be the one who needs to keep the commandments. And as you read through Kings, you're like, wow, that King's terrible. That King's awful. That King's wretched. Then you get to Hezekiah, like maybe, maybe he's the one. And then you realize he's not the one and so on and so forth. Josiah, but he dies and things are not looking so good. And then they go into exile. What of the promises of God? What of David? What of the household of God? What of the dwelling of God? What of glory? And then Christ comes. The son of David, the son of Abraham, the true temple of the Lord, where his people can dwell with him. And what Christ does is he brings in that new covenant where God will be our God and we will be his people. 
And the reason he does so is because of what we've seen in these verses. That is, we are brought near by the blood of Christ. We have peace by the blood of Christ, that Christ might offer salvation and call forth his elect, that we might dwell with God most high and have access to him through Christ who tabernacled among us. And all this is founded upon that eternal transaction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The reason you have salvation, the reason you dwell with God now and will dwell with him forever is because of this plan, this plan of redemption, this accomplishment of redemption, and this application of redemption in time and space. And God does this all by way of covenant. Well, let's pray. Our great Father, we are thankful we can approach you through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you we can approach you through the blood of Christ. Thank you that we have peace with you through the blood of Christ as well. Thank you that you've reconciled us to yourself through the cross of Christ, thereby destroying enmity. We confess our great God, we do not truly comprehend the blessing it is that we dwell with you and that you dwell with us. We don't comprehend the blessing it is to know that we ought to enjoy you forever. Please forgive us for this. And thank you that there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ Jesus uh, for these sins and these, uh, these things that we are not thankful of. But help us to be reminded. Help us to know that we are your people. Help us to know that you dwell amongst us. Help us to know that you are with us. And thank you that you are the one who has made that way and you've done so according to your plan of redemption, the application and execution of it in time and space. Thank you that we see this unfolding by way of covenant, by farther steps that sinners might have life with you, might have dwelling with you, that we might have hope and eternal life in your presence forever. May church be a blessing for us. May it not be a drudgery. May we love to gather, love to be with the saints, love to be with your people, for this is where you are. But thank you also that you are with us. Thank you that you are with us and you guide us each and every day. You help us by your spirit as we are walking through a barren land, as we are walking in a world in which we are tired and weary, yet we are thankful that you are with us. We long for heaven. We long for that unbroken communion with you. We long for that time of the new heavens and new earth. Thank you that it's been inaugurated and we long for its consummation. So may you give us comfort and encouragement. May it cause us to fear. May it cause us to revere. And may it cause us to rejoice that we get to ascend the mount of the Lord through Christ our King. So we pray that you be with us now by your spirit. Be with us as we partake at the Lord's Supper. Thank you for this sign and what it signifies and what Christ has done for us. Be pleased to bless it now, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.